can turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, verse 18. I was remembering this week the first time that I ran a 10K, which um, by way of full disclosure is the first time, it was also the last time. <laughs> Probably be the only time. I'm not driven to run a marathon or anything like that. But I wanted to run a 10K and um, I got there and I remember... Um, starting the race and you know I was, I was in decent shape and uh, so I was moving out pretty good started race pretty strong but I, I don't I had not um, I hadn't run a, actually a 10k since I was in high school I've been training for 10ks running 5ks and so I hit you know I hit about 5k and guess what man I, I hit a wall and oh, I was I was really sore I was really tired and I was really very tempted to quit but I thought to myself I, you know it's just too embarrassing to tell people that I knew that I had started the race, but I hadn't finished the race. And I also actually, I had a friend running with me and he used to be an army ranger. And so there was no way that he was going to let me quit the race. And I didn't, you know, really deep down, I didn't want to quit the race. I wanted to finish the race, but I was thinking about that race in terms of uh, what we're looking at in Philippians, Paul's life. I was thinking about it in my own life and uh, running the race and wanting to finish well, and then all of the barriers and the trials that come into our lives at various points in time. And there's something in us that, you know, we're really, we're often tempted to quit. The word endurance in Greek literally means to remain under, to to stay there, and to learn from the process. But often when I'm in the midst of a trial, uh, what I want most is just to escape. If I remember to pray, it is, God, make it stop. God, I'm, I'm ready for it to end right now. Give me a way out, and if God doesn't act quickly enough, then I'm beginning to think of ways that I can make circumstances change and I can find my way out. So we're reading the book of Philippians. Paul is in the midst of a trial, figuratively, but also literally he has a trial coming up. And he longs for deliverance, but not as, as we normally think about deliverance or escape. I want us to read together Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 18. Paul says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me... To live is Christ. Verse 19, Paul talks about deliverance. Deliverance from what? Uh, The word that he uses here for deliverance is actually the Greek word for salvation. Fortunately, uh, our translations didn't use the word salvation. Otherwise, we'd be very confused. Is Paul talking about salvation from the penalty of sin, getting into heaven and out of hell? That's what we normally think about when we hear the word salvation. But salvation is actually one of those words that's used in, in a very broad way. And it's probably better anytime you see the word salvation to insert rescue or deliverance. So you're forced to think, rescue from what? Deliverance from what? I want to give you a little survey of this word. First thing that we think about normally is this. Deliverance or rescue from sin's penalty. We're told that the wages of sin is death. Every person here uh, is born in sin. We have this bent to pursue our own will and we follow it most of our lives. The wages of that sin, we're told, is death, meaning separation from God forever. We need to be rescued from that. We need to be saved from that. That's one of the frequent uses of the word salvation. Kind of a, a familiar 
illustration of this is Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace, that is God's uh, undeserved favor toward us, you have been rescued through faith. And this, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. What Paul's talking about is being rescued from the penalty of your sin. Jesus Christ paid the penalty. So you don't have to pay the penalty. And the moment that you just believe that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for you, your debt is removed. No longer do you have death reigning over you. Now you have the gift of eternal life. You will live forever in the presence of God. That's the essence of the gospel. It's very simple. It's so simple and so completely free, in fact, that it's a stumbling block to so many people. Eternal life is a gift. In life, there's no such thing as a free lunch, we're told. There is nothing that you get for nothing. You've got to earn your way. You've got to work hard. And yet, the greatest gift in the universe, eternal life with God, is, in fact, an absolutely free gift. You just reach out and you receive it. If you've never done that, I want to encourage you this morning. This is the greatest gift that you could receive. To be rescued or delivered from the penalty of sin. Okay, that is one of the most important ways that the word is used. But it's used other ways as well. It's also salvation or deliverance or rescue from sin's power in your life. The moment that you trust Christ, your eternal destiny is secure, but then God gives you his spirit and he begins to work in your life, transforming you and making you more and more and more like Jesus Christ. Paul actually refers to this concept in Philippians chapter 2. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And you'll notice the tension there. Paul says, work out your salvation. He's not talking about the free gift. He's saying, participate in God's present work in your life. And it is God working in your life. It's not you making yourself more and more like Jesus Christ. It's you participating in the power of God's work in your life. It's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's present tense salvation. Now third, there's deliverance or rescue from sin's presence forever. That's, that's salvation future. That's a rescue that is uh, future. It is yet to happen. When we're in the presence of the Lord and the sin nature, the flesh is completely removed, we are delivered from the presence of sin in our lives. Romans chapter 13, Paul says, Do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The moment we, that we believed, we received salvation, that is eternal life, but we're yet to actually gain it, right? We're waiting for it. That is glorification. Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about this. We're, we're waiting for a Savior who will come and he will transform the body, this, this humble body that, that wears out and grows old and is susceptible to temptation. He's going to transform it into the very image of the body of Jesus Christ. How's he going to do that? Well, by the exertion of that power that Christ has. God raised Christ from the dead and Christ has the power to transform us. That's salvation future. That's glorification. Salvation is also used in just kind of some more basic ways. Uh, There is salvation from sickness, being rescued or delivered from an illness. Matthew 9, Jesus came upon a woman who had a hemorrhage, and she wanted to be saved. She wanted to be saved from this illness in her body. So as Jesus turning and seeing her said, daughter, take courage, your faith has saved you. At once the woman was saved. He's not talking about getting away from the penalty of sin and out of hell and into heaven. He's talking about a physical salvation, rescue from 
uh, one of the effects of the fall in our lives, which is bodies that wear out. We need to be rescued from that. There's also salvation or deliverance from enemies. This is a very common theme in the Psalms. The psalmists are always calling out saying, God, rescue me. My enemies are all encamped around me. Rescue me. Deliver me. Also here in the book of Acts, referring back to Moses, says, uh, this is Stephen's sermon. It says, he, Moses, supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them salvation through him, but they did not understand that he was going to be the, uh, the savior, a rescuer, one who would get them away from their enemies. Okay, so there's salvation from the penalty, the power, the presence, salvation from sickness, from enemies, and then also salvation or rescue from physical danger. Acts 27, uh, Paul with his companions, including Luke, they're on a boat and they're in the middle of a storm. It says, since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us, from then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. We need to be rescued. Same thing when the disciples are on the boat with Jesus. They say, Jesus, save us. Not from the penalty of sin, but save us from this storm. Rescue us. So you see that word and you've got to say to yourself, salvation from what? Rescue from what? Deliverance from what? Paul is talking about deliverance. If it's me and I'm in prison, I'm saying deliver me from prison. Get me out of prison. Get the chains off of me. But that's not what Paul is referring to. I want you to turn with me back to the book of Job. Now, you probably can't find this in the marginal cross-reference in your Bible, but Paul is actually quoting Job. He's quoting Job chapter 13 and verse 16. Okay, so as you're, you move back to Philippians, right in your margin, right next to Philippians 1.19, Job 13 verse 16. We're going to start reading uh, in verse 13 in just a second, but... Um, in, in case you can't remember the sto- story of Job, you, you should. You should every once in a while just read those first few chapters. It's it's an amazing story. Remember, Job is um, in the midst of trial. God's allowing him him to be tested, and he's tested in terms of loss of family, loss of his his money, his fortune, uh, his physical health, and um, Job is really suffering. He doesn't know why he's suffering, but then Job's uh, comforters, his friends come, which is, there's a lot of irony there that we won't even get into, but his, his comforters, his counselors, friends come and they say to him, uh, just confess your sin and you can escape from this trial. Because the only thing that, reason that bad things happen to good people like you, Job, is you, you did something wrong. You sin, so just confess it, get it over with. And Job, he's, he's left in a quandary because he's examined his heart, he's examined his life, and he says, you know, I, I don't think so. I think I've lived my life righteously before the Lord. And Job is getting increasingly frustrated as the book goes on. Chapter 13, speaking to his comforters, he says, 13, 13, he says, be silent before me so that I may speak. <laughs> you guys just, just shut it for a minute and give me a chance to talk. You're wearing me out. Then let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. Job says, look, you're saying that God is, is punishing me for some guilt, but I don't think so. And so I'm going to present my case. He views God's throne room as, as a court. And he wants to come into the presence of God and argue his case and say, God, please examine my life. I don't think there's any unconfessed sin before you. Verse 16, here's the quotation. 
this also will be my salvation. It's a, tra- it's a quotation of the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Paul says, this will turn out for my salvation. Job says, this also will be my salvation, for a godless man may not come before his presence. Listen carefully to my speech and let my declaration fill your ears. Behold, now I have prepared my case. I know that I will be vindicated. What is the salvation that Job hopes for? It's vindication. He hopes to be able to stand before the Lord, to lay his life out before the Lord, and God will say, yes, Job, you have in fact lived well. Don't let your circumstances deceive you that I'm against you. I am for you. Job, you have lived well. The salvation is vindication. So Paul goes back all the way to the book of Job and he quotes Job and he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. My deliverance is deliverance that is a vindication. I have lived my life well. Turn back to Philippians chapter one and let's read again. Verse 19, Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. What is the this? The this is what's gone before. Paul's response to trial. Paul is not attempting to escape the trial. He's trying to endure the trial, and he's saying, My response of choosing joy in the midst of the trial will vindicate me. I haven't gotten angry at God. I haven't gotten bitter at God. I haven't run away from the testing of God. I have remained under and I have found joy. Even though others, even believers, are trying to add to my tribulation by preaching Christ from envy and strife, how backward is that? I have found joy. Notice he goes on, he says, This will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. What Paul is wanting deliverance from is not from the trial, but deliverance through the trial in order to exalt Jesus Christ. Notice he says here, I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Remember the setting. Paul is in prison. Paul is literally about to face trial. When he goes before the Roman tribunal, there will be one of two verdicts. Either you are vindicated, you are acquitted, you have lived your life well, or you will be put to death. Paul is literally facing a death sentence. And he says, I pray that with all boldness, another word, way to translate that is, with all openness and trans, transparency, I will be vindicated, not before men, but before God, whether by life or death, whether they say, yes, you may be free and you can continue to live, or no, you will be put to death. Paul says, I want to live with confidence before the Lord. I want to be delivered through the trial. Notice the provisions that are made for him. It says, my deliverance will come through your prayers and through the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's really interesting, that, that word for uh, provision talked about uh, equipping an army 
or equipping uh, a chorus or a play, and, and it had to do with basically lavishly providing for them. And the Greek words prayer and provision of the Spirit are grammatically tri- tied together. What Paul is saying is that the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ is unleashed through the prayers of God's people. So when your friends around you are going through a trial, your prayers for them unleash the provisions of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And when you are going through a trial, the prayers of your friends around you unleash the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That is how God has designed it to happen. Now Paul has the Spirit, right? He's been indwelt by the Spirit. The moment that any person believes You have the Spirit of God. You don't get more of the Spirit later. But when you are going through a trial, God has power from his Spirit to pour out upon you. In the Old Testament, uh, it, it said that the Spirit of God would come upon people. And they would perform some task. It might be going to war. It might be worshiping. Uh, it might be uh, Bezalel was the first person that said he was filled with the Spirit and he made utensils for worship in the, in the, in the tabernacle. Okay, it could be for a variety of things. The Spirit of God coming upon people. In the book of Acts, the same imagery. The Spirit was already indwelling people, but he would come upon them as they were going through difficult circumstances so that they could honor God in the midst of trial. Look at Acts chapter 7 for an illustration. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is, uh, has just given a long sermon to the Jewish leaders. And he's recounted their whole history and um, convicted them of the sin of crucifying Jesus. Chapter 7, verse 54. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at him. Man, they're angry. But being full of the Holy Spirit. Spirits come upon him. He is under the Spirit's control. It says, He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they covered their ears. It's very mature behavior, right? I've <laughs> seen that at my house before. These are adults, but they cried out, they covered their ears, they rushed at him with one impulse. When they'd driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. He died. Man, how could Stephen do that? Why didn't he cry out for deliverance? From the stones? Or why didn't he try to prove his case that he was right? Because he was looking at all of life on earth through the lens of heaven. He's gazing intently into the throne room of God, and so he's seeing his present circumstances in light of heaven. And it transforms the way he sees absolutely everything. So instead of trying to prove his case for his own righteousness, his own vindication, he's trying to prove the case for Jesus Christ. And to those who are stoning him, he says, Father, forgive them. Have you ever been wronged? Do you want to prove your case? Man, I do. I run it through my mind over and over and over again. The imaginary conversation where I win. Right? I win and you lose. I'm right and you're wrong. Every time. That's the way I go. It's in my mind. 
What does Stephen do? Oh, Lord, use this pain in my body and this death that's about to occur so that they can see the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Let them know forgiveness. How do you look at life like that? That is a paradox. The book of Philippians is designed to cause us to see life upside down, completely different, to live as Christ, to die as gain. When I fill in the blank, to live is, you know, my, my natural inclination is to live as Brian, to live as me. You know, and then there are others who orbit around me, but I'm the, I'm the center. And I know that because of the way that I react to them. Because I'm reacting to them based upon how they affect me. Not based upon where I stand in relationship to them and the Lord. For to me, to live is Christ. That's a paradox. The uh, Bible's full of them. A friend of mine recently gave me a book entitled Paradoxy. I thought, man, what a great title. I wish I'd thought of that. But I didn't. So uh, I can't write that book. But I love the concept. I've thought about that concept a lot. I, wanna, I want us to look at that. Because Jesus talked about paradoxes a lot. That is something that... It just doesn't seem right, but it actually is. And you really can't understand it until you get inside of it. You take a step of faith and say, okay, I'll choose to live that way, but it doesn't really make sense. And then you try it and you realize, oh, okay, God was right. Look at Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, verse 1, Jesus saw the crowds. He went up on the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth. He began to teach them, saying, blessed are the rich. Get rich. You can't win the lottery if you don't play. Come on. No, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay? I guess I'll keep listening. Blessed are the, those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who, who laugh. You know, those are the people who are having a really good time. They're the ones who are at the party. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle, the meek, the mild, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, remember years ago, Sting came out with a song. He said, what good is a used up earth and why would it be worth having? The song he's saying, well, you know, look, God says, he's playing off the, the Sermon on the Mount. He, he was familiar with Sermon on the Mount. And he said, well, you know, the earth's just getting torn up and used up and the meek inherit it. Well, why bother? Be strong and get it now. The best is right here. That's the best you can get. Verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You're blessed. Blessed means happy, joyful. He says, Blessed are you when you're beaten down. That's a paradox. That's a paradox. You've got to try it. You never understand it till you just step in the middle of it and say, well, okay, I'll take a step of faith, God, I'll, I'll try it. Let me show you another one. Stay in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. Matthew 20, verse 25. Jesus called his disciples to himself. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. 
Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And you remember the setting is that the disciples, uh, they're always trying to push their way forward. They want the best seat next to Jesus. They want to be in charge of the other disciples. And they're pushing and pushing and pushing. And Jesus says, man, you want to be great. I understand that. Here's how you be great. Get low. Okay, go low. Serve. Humble yourself. Be a slave to those who are your peers. And the disciples say, nah. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. It's not until Jesus has actually died, been buried, risen from the dead, shown himself to them, and empowered them with his spirit that they finally start to realize, oh, he was right. That's what he did. And that's how you become great. So later Peter would write, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he can exalt you at the proper time. Put yourself low to get high. That's a paradox. Let's look at one more. Matthew 16. Verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life or rescue his life, deliver his life, he will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? He says, look, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? That is the world system. Gain the whole world. Okay, Take, grasp, uh, conquer. And Jesus said, you know, you can gain all of it that way. That's how the world works. But eternal realities are completely backwards to that. Give up the world. Give up yourself. Replace yourself with Christ. Another wonderful paradox in the book of James, he says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Say to yourself, that's where joy will be found, in the midst of trial, not trying to escape trial. Paul, Paul had embraced this paradox. He lived inside of this paradox. And so, He's in the midst of trial. He's in prison and he looks back at his life and he says, man, I am filled with joy. I'm overflowing with joy. Don't don't be worried about me. I'm overflowing with joy. Why? Because to me to live is Christ and the gospel's going out through my imprisonment. I got a prisoner chained to me and I'm sharing the gospel with him and then he's sharing the gospel with others and the gospel's going out through the entire household of the Roman leadership. And if to live is Christ then these bad circumstances are not bad. They're good. They're they're furthering the gospel. They're not pleasant, but they're furthering the gospel. And as I look forward to the future, I have joy because to me to live is Christ. If I'm going to stay here on earth, I'll have fruitful labor. And if I die, well, that's gain to me because I'll be in the presence of Christ. So there is nothing that circumstances can do to touch my joy. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. What does that mean for us practically? Let's go back to Philippians and look at this a little more carefully. Chapter 1, let's read in verse 26. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will be to me fruitful labor. For I do not know which to choose, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire... To depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh seems more necessary for your sake. And being convinced of this, 
I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Paul says, I need to be delivered in order to have fruitful labor. If I'm going to stay on here in the flesh, it's going to be fruitful labor. We're going to do another quick word study here. What does fruit mean? Well, there are a lot of things that fruit can mean. Uh, Literally, that's obvious, but figuratively, uh, it often refers to converts. People trusting Christ is fruit. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 13, I want to come to Rome so that I may have some fruit. That is, I can share the gospel and people will join or associate themselves with Jesus Christ and his kingdom. It also refers to character. This is one of the primary ways we think of it. Uh, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is character change. That's genuine spirituality. Love, joy, peace, patience is my natural reactions to things. It's character. What is Paul talking about when he refers to fruit here? He's talking about people, right? Whether it's converts or the character developed in these people, it's people. Paul's life is given to people on behalf of Christ because this is not fruit that spoils, so to speak. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved Okay, Paul says this frequently. He says, people are my joy and my crown. Where is my value found? It is in people. They're my crown. Okay, that, that's, that's my retirement account. People. And nothing can touch it because I've invested in people. And if you don't invest in people, you won't love people. But then when you do begin to invest in people, then you will find yourself concerned and caring for people. Because you have given to them and you want them to progress. That's what Paul says. I'm I'm convinced I'm going to stay for your progress and your joy in the faith. That's why God's got me sticking around here. So that you can move forward because you are my joy. You are my crown. This is the reason God has left me on earth. So to live is Christ means that I invest in others on behalf of Christ. So my question for you this morning is what is your fruitful labor? Now, what is the fruitful labor God has given you? If you are a parent of young children, that's your fruitful labor right now. That's the primary one. You may have others. But no one can invest in your children, spiritually and emotionally and physically, like you. No one can be a substitute for that. And you have this little window of time where um, they sort of listen to you, right? But I, I, I've, I've done some children's ministry, I've worked at camps and stuff, and I've done junior high ministry, and I've done high school ministry, and I've done college ministry, and I know that there comes a point in time where the voice of parents uh, becomes dimmer and dimmer and dimmer, and the voice of friends becomes louder. Now, sometimes, fortunately, uh, the voice of parents can grow louder again later, and we start to wake up and we realize, oh, they did, you know, they, they're not so dumb. After all, they, they had something to say, but when they're little, man, you you have an incredible opportunity for investment. So if you are walking with the Lord and you're growing and there is a love for Jesus Christ, a passion for Christ in your life, it will overflow into your kids. 
I remember a really good friend of mine saying to me one time, he said, Brian, you need to realize there is, there is no such thing as quality time. He said, quality time is a myth. Time is a quantity. That's all that time is. It's a quantity. Now, in the midst of that quantity, if you invest quantity time with people, you'll find quality moments. And uh, he told me a story about a time when uh, his daughter wanted to raise a steer. And so they spent uh, hours and hours and hours and hours uh, I think they leased some land, and they would go out, you know, and you do what you do when you're raising a steer. <laughs> you're bringing food, and you're shoveling stuff, and that's, they're investing time together. And he said in the midst of that, I think it was a nine-month to a year process, they had a few quality conversations. Okay? You, you've got to get your, your children and your spouse have to have time. That's part of the fruitful labor, investing in them so that they move forward with Jesus Christ. Okay? You may also have fruitful labor among your neighbors. You know, a lot of times we look at our house, we look at it just in, in physical and material terms. Well, you know, that house came up for sale at the right time, and I was able to secure a loan, and I got a decent interest rate, and so God provided. God said, oh, it's just a house. Look at the fruitful labor. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And God stuck you in that neighborhood with those people around you for a particular purpose. God put you in that dorm room for a particular purpose. You know, once you gather some of your friends that you know are believers in that dorm room and say, you know, let's start praying for our floor. Let's do something socially on our floor that begins to connect us with those who don't know Jesus Christ. We can do the same thing in our neighborhood. Let's start to live intentionally so we can have fruitful labor or maybe it's in your, uh, your workplace. I remember when I was a high school student, I had my first Christian friend uh, that I was going to school with in, in all of my, my upper schooling. We, I grew up in New York, and in New York I, had, I didn't have any Christian friends. And when I moved to Texas, my first Christian friend, my junior year, this, my best friend trusted Christ. Man, he was on fire. And he motivated me, and we got together. We had a Bible study in, in his house every week. We started inviting our friends and we started, it just changed our whole perspective about our classmates and why we were in school at this place. Adults, you have an opportunity. You, you, are, you are living next to arguably the most fruitful campus in the world. A&M students are incredibly receptive to the gospel and incredibly receptive to spiritual growth. You can bring them into your home. Your, your children get to see a, a vision of the next stage in life. What does it look like to walk with the Lord as a college student? It benefits your family. It benefits the students. That's fruitful labor. My point is simply this. People are fruitful labor. People are the reason God has left you here on earth to invest in them. Paul says, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That is, I will be rescued or delivered into the presence of Christ. I have no fear about that. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, then the point of that is so that I can give my life to others. So as we close, what I'd like for us to do is just take a moment, go before the Lord, and ask the Lord, Lord, how am I filling in the blank right now? I mean, really, honestly, Lord, for to me to live is, how am I filling it in? And then ask the Lord to put Christ there and trust him that that is a life well lived. And get inside of that paradox and just just try it. Take a step of faith. Let's go before the Lord and then I'll close this in just a moment.
Heavenly Father, the, the stories popped in my mind. I think about the disciples and they were following Jesus and they said, behold, we left everything. What's in it for us? And they were struggling to understand this paradox that we really can trust you if we give up everything for Jesus. It will be worth it. More than worth it. To live is Christ. That is, well, that's really living. And I pray, Father, that that we would grow in our understanding of that, uh, that we would uh, be stretched by your spirit to not live for self, but to live for Christ and to live for others on behalf of Christ. Father, I pray that you would uh, pour out your richest blessings upon this church. I pray, Father, that we would have the endurance not to try to escape from the trials, but to remain under them and to live in such a way that we bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ, whether we live, whether we die, that all is for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.